This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks for using The Tome's Amazon and D&D Classics affiliate links. Hi, this is Wolfgang Bauer, author of Forge of War, Expedition to Demon Web Pits, and a whole lot of independent games you probably don't know. If you don't listen to The Tome, you're a sad, sorry man. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm Tracy Hurley, and in this episode, number 238, we're taking on the minions of Tiamat herself as we interview Wolfgang Bauer and Steve Winner about the tyranny of dragons. Dragons. <laughs> Tracy's excited about dragons. Uh, before we get too far, we should let you know what tyranny of dragons is. It's a big Forgotten Realms-based adventure series that's being used to launch the newest edition of D&D. The event comes out intermingled with the release of the various new D&D core books. It involves a plot by new leaders of the Cult of the Dragon to aid the, in the ascendancy of Tiamat. It comes out in two adventures, Horde of the Dragon Queen and The Rise of Tiamat, as, as well as tie-ins with various video game products, most notably the Neverwinter MMO, minis from WizKids and Gale Force 9, whether you want them pre-painted or not, t-shirts, a comic book series from IDW, organized play adventures through the new D&D Adventures League, uh, and possibly some other things, according to the interview we have with uh, Wolfgang and Steve, uh, that they haven't announced yet. So lots of stuff going on with this uh, adventure that's launching the new edition of D&D. Yep. And so for this episode, Wolfgang Bauer and Steve Winner joined us to talk about uh, what we can kind of expect, hopefully without too many spoilers, because uh, they helped write, they, they wrote the adventures under the design studio of Cobalt Press, Wolfgang's company. So without further ado, Jeff? Thanks, Tracy. So we are here now with Wolfgang Bauer and Steve Winter. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Well, glad to be here. Yeah, thank you. Now, Wolfgang, you're a, you're an an old expert, an old old hat here, being on the on the show. Yeah, um, what my third appearance or something? Fourth, at, at least. I think you were like one of one of the, if not the first interview I ever had on the show. Wow, you know? I'm always happy to come back. But I think you were on the show before Tracy was. Is that possible? <laughs> <laughs> wow. uh, and Steve, you're new to the show, but not new to uh, game designing and D and D. That's true. So, so while some people might know uh, the bona fides of, of you two uh, esteemed gentlemen, um, just in case somebody doesn't know, who are Wolfgang Bauer and Steve Winter? <laughs> well, they're just these guys, right, who worked at uh, the old RPG factory, the one in Lake Geneva called TSR, which, which used to be sort of a, oh, you were one of the TSR guys sort of introduction, and now it's like... 
Were they the ones before Wizards of the Coast and Paizo? I've heard of TSR. (laughs) So I think I'm falling into the old as the hills category at this point. But yeah, um, I edited Dungeon Magazine and Dragon Magazine way back in the day. I worked at Wizards of the Coast on role-playing games. I worked on Alcadim and Planescape. Uh, And now, of course, I'm the publisher of my own little small press called Cobalt Press. That's me. And Steve, who are you? Uh, well, I, I was at TSR as well. I, I started there as an editor in 1981, and I did just about every job related to publishing D&D that there was over the next you know, 16 years up until uh, the company moved out to Seattle. Um, I, I did not make that move initially. I came, to, came out to Seattle finally in 2001 and went to work for Wizards of the Coast, and uh, I've been the editor, developer, writer, creative director. Uh, like Wolf, I had a, a short stint, not as long as his, I think, as uh, editor in chief of uh, Dungeon and Dragon. And now I'm uh, back writing what I want to write. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the best gig. Doesn't pay quite as well, but it's very, very, uh, you know morally rewarding creatively satisfying yeah great and um part of that getting to write what you want to write i'm guessing is this adventure that's going to be the uh introduction to the new edition and we're just kind of wondering how that all happened (laughs) uh we're still wondering that ourselves (laughs) (laughs) I think it has to do with the fact that Cobalt Press was founded uh, eight years ago now as um, an adventure design house, right? We All of our first products were, let's do an adventure. Hey, let's do another one. Hey, let's design another adventure. Um, because that's what I like to write, and I was essentially self-publishing for the first year or two uh, with some crowdfunding support and, and feedback. Um, but... Over time, um, you know, that that mania for writing adventures, which probably comes from editing Dungeon back in the day, um, I think it got Cobalt Press a reputation as those guys are nutty about adventures. And I I think that's what Mike Merles was thinking um, when he said, so would you be at all interested, right, in doing (laughs) something with the new edition of D&D? And I didn't. I don't think I'd let him get to the end of that sentence. I was like, yes, yes, I would. Um, well, and also, because it's not just that you've had this uh, house that's been publishing adventures for a while. You kind of took a stand as being agnostic a bit. Oh, yeah. came to editions, which to me seems perfect to lead in to what 5th edition is trying to do. Yes. 5th uh, edition is trying way more than um, prior editions to, to appeal to a a variety of play styles um, and to call back to some of the roots of the hobby and to simplify certain things. Um, I mean, if you look at the history, every edition tends to be a big block of time and attract certain types of players. Um, I don't know if they can blow up those divisions between people who really like their like tabletop minis and people who really prefer a more freeform style. Um, but it's giving it a really good run, so we'll see. Yeah, and if anyone has experience doing it, 
You guys uh, that, that would be us, right? I mean, we've published Call of Cthulhu, we've published 13th Age, we've published a lot of Pathfinder, some 4th edition D&D, a lot of 3rd edition D&D in the early days, um, and, you know, and Pathfinder as, as a flavor of 3rd edition as well. So, yeah, a little bit all over the map, but all fantasy core adventure. So, Steve, how did you get called into to this then? Um, that was sort of a right place at the right time kind of situation. I was uh, working at Wizards um, as the I was producing Dragon and Dungeon online, uh, but on a one-year contract, and my contract was about to expire when everyone in the office was talking about. Uh, you know, this new arrangement that the company was going to try for producing these early adventures. And so I suddenly found myself, you know, uh, my contract expired at the uh, beginning of last November, and I was kind of thinking, well, it, this would be a great time to, you know, get, get up to my neck get some design work again. And I thought, no, oh, there's, a, there's a good chance Wolf is going to need some help. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a really good chance. <laughs> I gave him a call and said, "I am I am available right now." And that was those magic words. Yeah. So you left Watsy just in time to get hired by Watsy. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> sort of. I mean, yeah. Steve really knows the new edition because he was there even while the public playtest was going on. He was, you know, two laps ahead of everyone because mm-hmm. he had the inside track. So I mean, it couldn't have been better timing. Now, it is pretty unusual, I think, for Watsi to hire a design studio to do work like this. So, so how did that process work? Uh, <laughs> I don't think they've done it before ever mm-hmm. that I can think of. It, it's an arrangement that we had talked about in, I mean, off and on at TSR even experimenting with. Um, but it, it never came to pass. TSR was always, um, uh, you know, tried to keep a pretty tight rein on freelancers and, and giving them too much freedom was uh, not really the, the company's approach. Um, but, you know, the idea had been kicked around. So when I you know, heard that they were considering doing this, I was actually uh, very happy because it was something I'd always wanted to try. Yeah, the I was trying to think, and I think the only thing I could think of that was close was when somebody else published Dungeons and Dragon for a while, right? Yeah, I mean they they had licensed out, and they still license out mm-hmm. portion, portions of the D and D property, right? I mean it's like Dragon Magazine was was what gave Paizo Publishing their first platform, um, and they've done the same with with. Um, well, everything from movies to computer games to right. Facebook games, right? I mean, it's all over um, with partnerships. But the sort of core tabletop experience, like the the crown jewel, hey, let's roll some D20, let's kick some orc butt, mm-hmm. uh, that was always in-house. Um, with the exception of, yeah, you'd get freelance writers and freelance editors. You'd parcel out like one part of the design process to a freelancer, Um but like I wrote Expedition to the Demon Web Pits, right? That was a late 3-5 uh, big let's go to the abyss kind of adventure. And I was the writer and I was partnered with uh, uh, Gwendolyn Kestrel who was on staff at Wizards at the time. And she was like, okay, uh, 
you know, and then there was a developer who was on staff at Wizards and the editor who was on staff at Wizards. And this isn't that arrangement, right? I mean, we we wrote and uh, edited and you know illustrated and laid out the text. So, um, not that there was no oversight, but. <laughs> Uh, but it was very much a Cobalt production. It's like, here's our storybook for Tyranny of Dragons. And uh, we looked at that and we said, well, here's our outline, dear wizards. Here's what we'd like to do with it. Um, and there was some haggling and off we went. So it was once you sort of got the story figured out, everything else was on you. You did all the, the art, you did all the layout, you did all the editing. Um, you just, at the end of the day, handed them the, the final product and, and they sent it to the press. Well, sort of, right? I mean, they had <laughs> well, they had considerable input, right? Sure. Like the first story Bible is their work, mm-hmm. right? And that's the platform that they're doing all the tyranny uh, materials from. Um, I don't even think they've announced everything they want to do with it. But um, they then helped with the playtest because we weren't in any shape to, like, <laughs> farm out encounters to hundreds of people, right, and get full feedback, whereas they'd been running a public playtest for Dungeons & Dragons for quite some time. Um, so no, we got the, the playtest feedback from them, and of course any product this early in a new edition, um, you know, their their best uh, folks were, were looking at it, right? Mike Merles read the outline and, and said, yes, this, no, that. Um, Chris Perkins was involved. Um, I mean, there's any number of, of their people um, on the wizard staff who are sharp, sharp people. Uh, not to mention, like, you know, we had to lean on them for rules questions mm-hmm. constantly because it was still in flux. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, Steve, tell, do, you, do you want to tell the story of how the monster manual shook out? I don't know how much we want to say, right? But... <laughs> I was going to ask about monsters specifically later on anyway, so go ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, the the... the the kindest way to say it would be that, you know, these these were documents, these were living documents while we were working on them. <laughs> yeah, oh boy, were they living. <laughs> you know, every, every page had a, you know, a, a stamp at the top that was, you know, like, caution, this material is still in flux, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so uh, there were many instances where we would uh, design encounters um, around certain monsters because they were in the monster manual um, and then you know a week later we'd get an updated version of the monster manual and those monsters would be uh, you know they they were second level when we used them and now suddenly they're fifth level monsters and they're completely unsuited for that encounter uh, or they're gone entirely uh, or you know they've changed in some significant way so there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of double takes every time we got a you know a new update of the monster manual. Um, the 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 most amusing incident there, and I've told this one a few times. Some of your listeners might have already heard this or read it somewhere else. But one of the the very early encounters, we used a bunch of uh, NPC stat blocks that were I think they were the human warriors that were like second level human fighters, and wrote up this encounter. Between the time that we wrote it and it went out for playtesting, human warriors changed from being second-level um, NPCs to something like fifth-level. 
and the the play test, but, but no one caught the you know <laughs> that they were right. used on this this low level encounter. So all the play test reports came back, basically saying you know what is wrong with you people? We're we've had just one TPK after another. <laughs> <laughs> we're dying out here, man. Fifth level fighters at first level characters. How stupid can you be? And it was, you know, a clerical error that no one caught. Yeah, and I think that leads into something I often hear about playtesting is like, kind of like you'll get feedback like that, which isn't completely useful other than the fact that like now you know that you missed that one little thing, and the rest of the playtest feedback is useless. But but you have to ignore the part that calls you stupid or whatever. Well, fortunately, I think it was sent out in fairly small chunks, right? So it wasn't like people got, you know, here's 10 sessions worth of material, play it all. It was more like, you know, here's a few encounters. Um, and so the, the the pain and hardship was fairly limited. And people came back, so they got a, yeah. a chance at a better chunk next time. The feedback was very, very positive and very useful. Yeah, I mean, in a couple of cases, we could point at playtest feedback and say, no, nope, nope, we clearly made the right decision here. Look, the playtesters loved it. Um, and in other cases, yeah. <laughs> we may have been astray. And that's something that, I mean, frankly, Cobalt Press has done with all its adventures for a long time is we try to get some playtest on it and it's always worth doing. It takes longer. It's complicated to sort out what's good feedback and not. Um, but failure to do it means, you know, never spot that stuff and you're shipping something that's not mm-hmm. as good so is the playtest process pretty similar to what you were used to working with then oh no it was much better <laughs> it's much better than ours i mean ours is ad hoc right we're a small company we'd have maybe 10 playtest groups on a good project um and you know we'd send it out to 20 people and 10 of them would file a report and that was good but <laughs> with wizards <laughs> okay they're going to send it out to 100 groups right? or 200 We, I don't even know but and the feedback still maybe less people respond if it's a huge company playtest you know 20 people respond hey we just doubled the amount of feedback we got on this yeah well um, I, I can tell you as an alpha one of their alpha playtesters sometimes playtesting adventures is harder to, to fit into your regular schedule than other things too so mm-hmm. Right, and this was this was a big, I mean, taken all told, this was a huge block of yeah. text. I, I doubt that any of the playtesters managed to play the entire thing, because that's just asking a lot, right? Yeah. yeah, no, I don't think they leaned on anyone to do all of it, but, you know, um, if you play a few levels worth here, or you can get a lot of people out of, uh, out of mm-hmm. there. So we were very pleased with that. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm looking forward to. Actually, we're doing a, doing an autographed collector edition of of the first book and the second book, and I'm hoping to go down to Wizards with a big stack of books, and uh, Steve and I will sign them, and we'll get. Uh, I really want to get the playtest coordinator on it, <laughs> um, mm. and and some other folks because you know they all they all made it possible. So. Hold on. Yeah, those will be those will be for sale only on the Cobalt Press site. Ooh, a Cobalt exclusive. A Cobalt exclusive will be the signed collector edition with. I think we're throwing in a, a, a unit patch, like an army patch. That's the Tiamat Queen of Dragons patch. It's kind of nice. I like this set. We're only going to do. 
I don't know, 100 or 200 of them. And uh, when they're gone, they're gone. Because after a while, signing books, <laughs> you can sign a lot of books. I might have to have you set some aside for me to, to pick up a Gen Con, huh? Uh, that's a possibility. <laughs> we will, uh, the Cobalt Press booth at Gen Con, I'm, I'm memorizing the number. I'm saying it anywhere. Booth uh, 2537, a very small booth mm-hmm. that we will uh, have somewhere in the hall. And yeah, we will have copies of Tyranny of Dragons, uh, Horde of the Dragon Queen there. And we will chat to people about it and answer questions and sell you a book. Cool. Awesome. So the playtesters have gotten a sneak peek, but for the rest of us, mm-hmm. what can we expect from Tyranny of Dragons? <laughs> well, spoiler, spoiler, spoilers. I don't know, Steve. We, we've been coy about some things and not so coy about other things. What do we want to tell them? Um, well, it, you know, it, it starts off with a bang. Um, yes. You know, characters are thrown into the middle of a of a town that's being attacked by a dragon and its allies, and they they basically have a long night of trying to defend uh, the people and, and structures in this town against these raiders. Any and, town I might know is a realms fan. Uh, it's the town is greenest, which is down in the green fields. I don't know if it's okay. ever been. You know, it's on the maps, but I don't know that it's ever been featured in too many other products mm-hmm. before. We sort of chose it because it's out of the way and hasn't hasn't uh, been used too often. Which yeah, it would have been a, to set it up as we wanted. Right, it would have been a little tougher to like say, "Hey, let's burn down Baldur's Gate." And let's... <laughs> There's nothing going on in Neverwinter. Let's do stuff there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's, well, and. Not just, I mean, it, it Greenest in the, this very first episode of the adventure. So this Greenest takes it really takes it on the chin, right? <laughs> the town is, is much the worse for the wear by the time it's done. But I, you know, one thing we can say, and that I'm I'm actually very pleased with, is that the entire Sword Coast by the end of this adventure, you know, the whole Sword Coast has really taken it on the chin. Um, the uh, the cult of the dragon is uh, a, some really bad people, and they they do some very bad things in the course of this adventure. Yep, and they have big, big, scaly allies. And you know, an early adventure for Dungeons and Dragons should feature a whole lot of dragons. Yes. And <laughs> and early on in the outline, I think we said, "Well, Steve, you get one dragon, and I get the other dragon, and then we'll think about these other dragons. You've got to flip a coin. How many dragons can we fit into book one? Right? <laughs> um, well, I'm biased, because I think it should be just dragons and dragons. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we put some dungeons in there, too. But, I mean, I... Honestly, I don't know that we've actually... That I've, at least designed a whole lot of dragon encounters. I, I can think of one big one uh, from a few years ago, but it was fun to be able to say, you know, it's the cult of the dragon. Let's get big and scaly and let's just let's burn some towns, let's raid some caravans, let's you know, let's blow the effects budget. Let's go nuts. Yeah. Um, so we did. We got to design a big dragon lair and uh, although from my from my perspective, I actually find the dragons uh, the dragons minions, you know, all the all the hangers on 
that surround a dragon are more interesting to me. Um, now they're they're the ones that that I really enjoyed writing about because you can make them, you know, they're uh, especially when you're dealing with with an apocalyptic cult, right? Like the mm-hmm. cult of, you're, you're dealing with some seriously unbalanced people in that regard. Yes. You know, you, we have, there are some very colorful and interesting villains in this country. Oh, goodness, yes. Now, speaking of villains and the cult of the dragon, historically, their motivation has been creating Draculiches. Yes. Now, suddenly, it has to do with, with the ascendancy of Tiamat. Yes. How, how does that happen? Is that is that a major plot point that you would spoil to explain? Um, I think, actually, there's a... a blog post at coboldpress.com mm. the very first of our Tiamat Tuesday blog posts and I wrote it, it's called The New Cult of the Dragon and it kind of talks about that uh, to a certain extent it was given to us right, that hey, there's new management, right <laughs> the Dracoliches aren't the goal anymore and the reason why <sighs> It's not a major plot point for us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of Forgotten Realms history that, as adventure writers, it's interesting, but it's not like the players don't necessarily care, <laughs> other than to know, okay, we're probably not going to fight a lot of Dracoliches. Um, but yeah, this is sort of like when you're, you know, when you're trying to put out the fire. Uh, you know, the, the exact. You know, aside from the fact that you might not want to get electrocuted, you know, if it's an electrical fire, um, <laughs> you're, you're more concerned with dousing the flames at that point than with how the fire started. That's something to worry about a little later. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, at the same time, I mean, a, a giant operation like a huge world apocalyptic cult doesn't, you know, doesn't change ideology on a dime. There are probably a few of the old the old-school Dracolich-loving cultists around. Um, yeah, in fact, they, they play a significant role in, in one of the episodes, at least. Yeah, they, they do show up, um, but they're not the main thrust of the adventure. So there's, because a, there's a schism in the cult, huh? There is a schism, and, you know, maybe smart players can take advantage of that, or maybe smart players can just say, uh, we need to prepare for living dragons, let's, you know, let's <laughs> plan around that. Um I think sort of from a meta level, stepping back, it's like, well, we have all these chromatic dragons, and it's more interesting to do five chromatic dragons than five Dracoliches, right? Because after one Dracolich combat, it's like, wow, that was horrible. Let's not do it four more times. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So so it brings variety from that that meta level. Um, I think think players will enjoy hitting all the chromatics more than... Mm -hmm. Five Dracoliches. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm thinking. To some extent, it's a little. Uh, it's kind of too bad that that there's so much talk about the cult of the dragon now before the adventure comes out. Because yeah, the adventure definitely there is an element of mystery at the beginning as mm-hmm. to you know who is behind all of these raids and and you know all this trouble that's going on. Uh, and like a movie trailer, we've already gone and spoiled it, right? <laughs> exactly. But, but this is not the, this typical M.O. for the Cult of the Dragon. So there's a little bit of a mystery to be unraveled there before everyone really understands, oh, this is, this is 
a new cult of the dragon, right? They've changed their their uh, approach. So maybe if I'm going to run these adventures, run them, you know, six months after they come out and don't tell my players that that's what I'm running. Yeah. (laughs) So it'll just all be a surprise to them. I I mean, one group of of bandits who happen to have, you know, some weird appearance or some strange fire-breathing friends um, probably looks like another group of bandits who have, you know, a manticore friend or something else. It's not immediately obvious that, yeah, these are cultists. Um, so, yeah, the, to a certain extent, I'm a little sad that we... <laughs> if you name something the Horde of the Dragon Queen in the title, you, you've kind of given away a big... big <laughs> well, so talking a little bit more about mysteries, what are you guys working on now? <laughs> ah... Well, there's still book two, which is not final. Um, so we're locking that down uh, in the very near future. Um, and, well, I don't think we can talk about anything. <laughs> we're working on getting ready for the convention season. We'll be at Gen Con. We'll be doing some seminars there. We'll be blogging about Tyranny of Dragons and Horde of the Dragon Queen. Um, and, and there are some yeah. other things in the works. There are a few other things in the works. <laughs> okay. um, and, I mean, we've released some things that are of more general interest, right? Like there's the Cobalt Guide to Magic, which was a wonderful um, guide to magic systems and gaming uh, uses of different types of fantasy, um, which is sort of system neutral. But, you know, when you have, oh, I don't know, Ed Greenwood giving advice on how magic works um, – it's probably worth checking out. So, you know, some people may want to check out the Cobalt Guide to Magic. Um, and we have other adventures. And we have, oh, man, I really want to talk about this one thing that's coming next week, but I probably shouldn't. Well, this will probably come out next week at the earliest. So people can go over to koboldpress.com and find out whatever that thing is, huh? Yeah, they should probably search on the word contest at that point. That contest. Point. Yeah, that's all I'm going to say. Okay. Okay. So, uh, speaking of Cobalt Quarterly, so that's one place people can go to uh, find out what you're up to. Where else should people go to find that crucial information? Uh, they should follow Steve's Twitter feed because, you know, what a blabbermouth he is. Um, no. <laughs> uh, uh, there's a feed and a blog, but I've been so busy writing these Tiamat adventures that I've <laughs> looked at either one of them for four months. She- Totally look at the Howling Tower blog. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, of course, Cobalt Press is on Facebook and Twitter. Um, those are good places to check out. And if you're really interested in like getting the news early, there's a Cobalt Press newsletter, um, which you can sign up for at the very bottom of the Cobalt Press webpage. There's a little white box that says Cobalt Courier, and we will spam you once a month. Okay, it's not even spam. We actually put real news and real announcements, and like it's pretty good. Yeah, I get, we, I, I get it twice. Oh, all right, <laughs> <laughs> yay! We used to go twice a month, but man, it's a lot of work getting like yeah. the news, and we want to talk about this Warhammer LARP thing, and look at this cool art we found, and we we try and make sure it's not it's not just like our catalog because that's boring. We'd rather share, like, what we're excited about in gaming. Like, here's something about Westeros. Uh, Here's an interactive Westeros map. Let's look at that. Um, 
or somebody's exciting Kickstarter. There's one I'm super excited about right now, and it's like totally feeding into my Ice Age mammals Jones, <laughs> right? I love mammoths and saber-toothed tigers and axe beaks, and somebody is sculpting all this stuff, and I'm going to throw that in the next newsletter. So that's the sort of thing you could expect there. If I can go back to Tyranny of Dragons design a little bit. Sure. Um, part of writing this has to mean that you've gotten a good, strong glimpse of the new version of the Forgotten Realms, which to date has not had you know a campaign guide or anything announced coming out. We've seen some of the changes in the in the Sundering series of, of events. Um, so how much support did you have in terms of what the new realms is going to look like? Were you in contact with, with story people for that, to fit it in that way? Or does Steve have sort of an inside track because of his uh, affiliation with Watsy Pryor? Or? Um, no. Call it a stumbling block, but... Um, probably had less visibility into that aspect of things than just about anything else. Um, and in fact, a lot of feedback that we received from Wizards of the Coast was along those lines. It was, you know, oh, this, you know, that portion of the realms isn't going to be like that anymore, or we're trying to deprecate this feature, or we'd really like to emphasize this kind of thing a little bit more. Um, but Almost all that feedback was received, you know, after the fact. It was, you know, I was writing to the realms as I have known them, you know, uh, up to this point. Mm -hmm. Other yeah. than what in, other than what was in the story bible itself, uh, which was chiefly concerned with the cult of the dragon and the story that they're creating. Um, you know, we it was basically we we wrote the realms as we have always known it. And then, you know, Wizards came back and said, uh, you know, yes or no to what we had written. But, but have right. seen I mean, little in terms of, of you know, what the new realm is going to be like or if it is going to, you know. Yeah, and it's, it's <laughs> tough, right? I mean, the realms is always like this, right? We feel like we know it and we've worked with it and, and it's a familiar setting. But it has changed over time. Mm -hmm. Um, and it will continue to change. And, and I'm okay with that. As a designer, I would rather have somebody say, here's our new, you know, setting guidebook, which we've totally prepared. Right. <laughs> but I think people will understand that, you know, like, Wizard's focus and attention was not on setting and world building. It was on core rules. Right during the time when we were designing. Um, and so they didn't... They had Realms material, but a lot of it wasn't in a form that was readily shareable. Mm -hmm. Let's put it that way. Yeah, so Steve's right. It was a stumbling block. We, we would hear about it when we turned it over kind of via the old spec. Uh, and then it's like, well, here's what's new. And now as you're working on the second adventure, is that a little bit more firm now? Is that easier to, to get past those stumbling blocks? Um, probably the yes. the The best piece of of information we've gotten, in you know, it, it's not really concrete, but uh, Matt Cernet at Wizards is their their resident expert on the Forgotten Realms now, and and I don't know whether he carries all this information in his head or if it's all the 
you know, the PDFs on his computer, but the man is an encyclopedia. Um, but essentially, the, inf the advice we got was, um, it, at least in terms of, of the overall tone and ambiance that you want to try to establish for the realms, think of it in terms of the way it was at this particular time, mm -hmm. right? And I can't really be any more specific about it than that because I don't want to spoil anything that Wizards doesn't want getting out into the public at this point. But essentially, it was, you know, it was a fairly clear historical reference, um, yep. you know, to... And that's, uh, the, I mean, that's not inconsistent or with what I've heard. I mean, Salvatore said that writing in the realms right now feels like it's 1984, you know, so that's not entirely inconsistent with what I've heard from other people. That's fair. Yeah, yeah. I, it's different than than the realms of you know two three years ago. Right. Uh, and speaking of design in the realms and elsewhere in, two, in the last two or three years, um, what Watsi has produced in those last several years in in terms of design uh, feels different than what I'm used to seeing from say Cobalt Press. Sure. So how much of your design aesthetic? Are we going to feel in Tyranny of Dragons, and how much uh, is the what we've known as the Watsi design aesthetic of the last several years going to be in there? I mean, is it all you, or did they want you to make it feel their way a little bit? Or, or? I think it's an alloy of the two. I mean, mm -hmm. no one in their right minds at Wizards was going to say, "Hey, you small press people over there, you've been doing some good work. We're just going to hand you, sure. you know." The crown jewels of a new edition and do whatever the hell you want. Now, that's not going to happen. Um, so, like, that story Bible was very much a foundation. The outline we wrote went back and forth in negotiation about what we like, what they like. And, and even the feedback late in the process, you know, some of it was, well, we really think the trap should work this way. Mm -hmm. And they might say, yeah, you know, but we have ideas from the DMG that we haven't shared yet that, you know, say, no, that's not the way we're going. So, I think there's plenty of Cobalt Press um, aesthetic. aesthetic in it, mm -hmm. right? Um, maybe not as much as if we had had 100% free oh, reign sure. to just go nuts. Um, but it's, it probably won't feel exactly like, you know, a Wizards of the Press book either. Um, because it does a few things differently where, where we argued our case and they said, yeah, yeah, all right, you have a point. Mm -hmm. um, you know, do it your way. Um, yeah. I was actually kind of, I would say, a little bit surprised with uh, how much we, uh, you know, got away with is the wrong word. <laughs> yeah, but, but we got to implement the way we want it, right? Exactly. That's... With how much leeway they gave us to, to approach this adventure in our own manner. That's awesome. I mean, if you're going, if you're going to farm it out to somebody, um, then you need to let them do that work, right? And, and see how it comes out. Absolutely. So. And and they did, uh, while certainly keeping out an eye to make sure, sure. that nothing was counter to Realms canon, uh, inappropriate for rules we hadn't seen yet. Right. You know, um, There are many things where uh, design-wise, monster-wise, certainly, things were changing so rapidly um, that, mm -hmm. that no design house outside the building at Lind Avenue was going to be able to keep up, right? Sure. So we just said, oh, all right, that's changed. Good I mean, point. 
as of this recording, I just saw a, a post on on Twitter from Mike Merles today about still working on the DMG. So the fact that yeah. you've got that you've got an adventure done and the DMG isn't finished yet, you know, speaks to the the fluid <laughs> issues that you had, might maybe had to deal with, you know. Yeah, and I think that's normal for edition starts, right? I mean, people don't remember how fluid things maybe were at the launch of fourth or the launch of third, but nobody knew anything for a while, and then it started to gel. And once the books shipped, my general impression is it takes like the gaming community a few months, six months, a year to really come to grips with like, well, what does this all mean in terms of how we're going to run our games? Mm-hmm. Um, some people are very quick to pick it up. Others, it takes longer. Obviously, we've got a, a big head start because we you know, started working 2013 on our design and trying to bring it in line. Do you think a uh, lot of people will, will have more of a heads up with this edition and get into it quicker because of the, the public play test? I think so. Yeah, I think that was the point of the public playtest. Is like, you know, people hate change, right? Gamers hate change, but people hate change generally. And when it's something you love as much as gaming, and it's really something you do all the time, then it's nice to get eased into it, right? Because mm-hmm. some of these changes are fairly big uh, from whatever edition you may have been playing before. Um, so a long pu- public playtest I've enjoyed uh, playing... Um, sort of a dungeon crawl game uh, that Steve ran for our local group and, you know, running my own game. So, um, yeah, and, well, yeah. And also, too, like, people don't like change, and it's even harder when it's change that you feel like you have no say in. Yeah, well, I think the public playtesters actually had a lot of say. Well, exactly. So now, they, they, not only did they have more time to deal with the change, they they got some chance to have a say. Yeah. Maybe they didn't always win out, but No, there's no way to please everybody, right? If right. You, <laughs> you look at the numbers from any poll, I mean Cobalt Press has done polling and, and Q and A on like smaller scales. It's like, okay, we can make seventy five percent of the people really happy and twenty five will just hate this decision. Well, all right. We'll take what we can get there. Seventy five percent's pretty good. Um but overall, I think it's stronger for having gone through that sort of public crucible. Sure. Yeah. And as I, as I always say, you can't please all the people all the time, but as long as you please me, you're going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Jeff. Well, you know, I, I don't know if Steve was going to say it, but I'm going to say it. The whole time I was writing Tyranny of Dragons, I was thinking, what's Jeff going to think of this? Well, there you go. <laughs> well, I know uh, you guys thought of me because it's dragons. So. Absolutely. <laughs> kept reminding me all the time. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> what is the Tome Show going to think, Steve? Come on, focus. Yeah. These are the important things that, that, that designers today have to tackle, I know. We have priorities. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, anything else people should know before we, uh, before we get, let you guys go? Gosh, there's so much. Last little tidbits that you want to share or things that we didn't ask that we should have. One uh, giant spoilerific thing you haven't heard anywhere else? I don't, whatever you want to say. <laughs> oh. I, I, you know, it's not even a giant spoiler. My, my favorite part of one of these encounters is just saying, you know, I'm going to put a giant tribe of cobalts in this section, and we'll see what happens. <laughs> I don't think that's a 
terrible surprise, but man, it was fun. It's like, oh, there's not going to be an official Dungeons & Dragons book, and it's just going to be lousy with kobolds. <laughs> and I thought they'd take it out in the outline, and I thought the playtesters would go, hmm, man, that's a lot of kobolds. And then, you know, they're still there. So... Kind of a uh, Dragon Mountain style. That one, that was a mountain full of kobolds. Oh it? man, not a whole mountain full okay. of kobolds. You know, that would be its own adventure. This is like two encounters worth, and they can be, you know, some game masters love the guys, and some guys say they're vermin. Just kill them all, take the XP, and uh, it, it's available for the kobold friendly game groups out there. There you go. There you go. And well, does Steve, do you have one that's not spoilery? That's like your favorite thing. Uh, well, the attaching that not spoilery condition, (laughs) (laughs) or you can spoil. I don't care. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there were a couple of sections in book one that I had a huge amount of fun uh, writing. Um, One of them is a long, a long road trip, uh, which is a collection of of you know just sort of oddball adventures that you have along the road that. You know, I felt it was a great chance to kind of reveal the nature of the Forgotten Realms, mm. right? You're, yeah. you're, you're on a long trip up the Sword Coast, and here are the kinds of things that happen. Um, that was a lot of fun to write. Uh, I love the way that turned out, Steve. That really was like, I don't normally like playing road trippy stuff, but it's like, oh, look, I could have a lot of fun with this. It really worked. It came across that that you enjoyed that section. <laughs> um, and then there's a section up north that uh, uh, drops characters into a, a situation that is... Um, uh, it, it's, very, it's a very savage sit- setting. Uh, they're out in the, in the wilds in the middle of nowhere, but at the same time, there's a, there's a lot of politics going on. Hmm. Um, and they can they can play this adventure as a straight up commando raid, or if they want, they can get involved in, you know, some uh, very political maneuvering between monstrous tribes and you know cultists who are trying to dominate them. And uh, you know, it, it, it's one of my favorite sections of the adventure. That you know, I, I could see some groups blowing through it in a night, and and others lingering in that section for weeks, just. You know, having fun with the uh, the setting. So. Very cool. And which one of you designed the blue dragon stuff? That's my favorite dragon. So I want to <laughs> well, I want to know who to blame if I don't like it. Well, <laughs> blue dragon right at the beginning, but I think that was the last one that I was involved with. I don't, okay. don't recall. Wolf had another one later or not. Yeah, I had one. I did not have a blue dragon later. No, I almost had a blue dragon later. But in fact, that went elsewhere. So okay, right. you know, stuff goes in, stuff comes out. It's not like the blue dragon got cut from the monster manual. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying the adventure <laughs> didn't need that encounter. So, well, like, keep wait. it in mind for the next one, since I know you're still working on it. All right. <laughs> See if we can squeeze in just one more. Yeah, one one more blue dragon. If you want to name him Jeff, that would be fine. <laughs> there are some. There are some situations where. The cult makes assassination attempts against the characters, and a, a blue dragon might feature in one of those, if I recall correctly. There you mm-hmm. go. So a blue dragon may well be the last thing you see if you play this adventure. Perfect. Yeah, good way to go out. 
All right. Well, thanks for joining us, gentlemen. I think that's all we got. All right. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank you. And that's the end of the episode. We want to thank Wolfgang Bauer and Steve Winter for joining us. And I want to thank all of you out there for supporting the show by going over to thetomeshow.com and clicking through to Amazon and D&D Classics where you get your same great service, your same great products, your same prices, but we get a little cut and it helps us do our thing and pay our bills and, and all that. And if you'd like to contact us, you can send us an email to thetomeshow at gmail.com or give us a call at, on our biz line at 919-BIZ-TOME. That's 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. Show notes and other great Tome Show shows are available at thetomeshow.com. And that is episode 238, where we cut the head of Tiamat off herself and then realized that she had four more. As we looked at Tyranny of Dragons in this episode of... The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome. I'm on the wall.